The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Chuck Klosterman, a writer and cultural critic who used to be the New York Times Magazine's ethicist. He's also the author of numerous books, most recently Chuck Klosterman 10, a highly specific, defiantly incomplete history of the early 21st century, and But What If We're Wrong? Thinking About the Present as If It Were the Past. Chuck Klosterman joins me now. Are you in Portland, Chuck? Yes, I am here in Portland sitting in my little Ted Kaczynski cabin uh, where my office is now located and uh, talking into a microphone. So how many hours a day do you spend in this in this cabin? How many hours a day? Well, usually I get out here. I have all these, you know, I got to take my kids to school and I take my wife to work and then I come home and typically I go to the gym for an hour. So I come out here generally at about 1130 and I work out here till five and that's five days a week. That's all the time I have to write now. So basically that is my life, though, and that span of time. What was your working routine when you were in New York, say? Well, it changed a lot. You know, when I was single, I sort of wrote whenever I wanted, whenever I felt the desire to write, I would just do it and and I would I would not sort of be dictated by anything else. So typically I did most of my writing very late at night. And then you get into a relationship and it changes and I think I moved back to the afternoons and the late morning, you know. And then when we when I first had kids, I started writing mostly in the morning. But now my life is sort of normalized and I would have thought, I think a lot of people think this, that it's harder to work if you have like these weird structures or obstructions that say like, you know, that dictate when you can be creative or whatever. But I have found the complete opposite. I have found that in many ways, it's actually better. It's actually sort of better to to um, have restrictions on when you can do stuff. I guess I like to be a slave. I'm I'm well made for enslaving myself. Have you, you seem like the type of writer and correct me if this is wrong, that maybe kind of the circumstances of your writing or of your writing day and your writing life dictate a little bit, maybe the type of things you want to write or has changed you as a writer in some way, or am I totally off base? It's possible. We'll see. I mean, other people have mentioned that they've asked me if, or, or they suspect or whatever they say, like, you know, do you think now that, you know, I kind of like live in the we're not in the woods, but like I'm surrounded by trees or whatever. And it's obviously life in Portland is very different than New York, more different than I anticipated. And I think that there's this assumption that somehow this will change what I produce, but I, I, I won't be able to tell, you know, I don't think, I don't think the individual has enough detachment from themselves or enough distance from themselves to see these kind of things change or evolve. I, I'm, I'm sure other people will. Uh, so I guess my real answer is I don't know. When you write a defense of the Unabomber, we know things will have changed <laughs> definitively. Well, it's hard. I, kind of, I almost kind of do that in like a book from like 10 years ago. So uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully I won't go that far. I mean, my, my cabin is a little different. I mean, I have Wi-Fi. It's not quite all the way, you know, it's windows, you know. So your book, which I mentioned in the intro, What If We're Wrong, I can kind of summarize the idea of that book, but uh, what would you say you were asking in that book? And then I have a follow-up if you tell people who haven't read it. I've told this story before, but I, I, you know, I was watching the Fox reboot of Cosmos, um, you know, not the, not the Carl Sagan one, the one Fox did you know, more recently. And you know, I was watching it, and as I was watching it, the part that seemed most interesting to me over and over again was whenever they would talk about a certain kind of thinking that had just existed for decades or even centuries. And then one individual would sort of bring forth a new idea. And within one generation of that person's life, whatever they sort of forwarded the new way of thinking or, 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 you know, became almost so normative that it was as if we'd always believed that. Like it was a, it would be a, like a paradigm shift that would just become this collective thing where everybody would suddenly act as though we've always thought this way about the world. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing that that happens, you know, it must happen a lot. And then, you know, as I was watching this, I, I happened to be reading uh, about Moby Dick. And I always mention that it's about, I wasn't reading Moby Dick. I was like looking I was like reading about Moby Dick on Wikipedia or something. And um, 
you know, I was just that's reading what Melville that intended. The, that's how he intended you to read it. So. Exactly. Well, I mean, I like it was I, for all I can't even remember. I was probably thinking about the Led Zeppelin song Moby Dick or something, and somehow moved on to the actual book, reading about the book, and then I'm reading about the life of Herman Melville. And sort of how he believed Moby Dick would, uh, you know, be his definitive work and, you know, it would be his, his kind of his masterpiece. And then it came out and it didn't sell that great and it got mixed reviews and it basically ruined his life. And I assume that at the end of his life, Herman Melville looked back at Moby Dick and was like, why did I write that idiotic whaling book? You know, so then, of course, after World War One, uh, the world changes and people say, well, this isn't just a good book. Like, this is the book. This is like the American novel. So the first thing, the thing about cosmos and science, like that's a kind of objective reasoning and the way the, you know, the world works objectively and the reception of Moby Dick and the meaning of Moby Dick, that's obviously subjective. So these are different things. But in both cases, it was as if a reality we kind of accept is completely unlike the reality that came before it. And we look back on the previous way of thinking and say, well, boy, that was absurd. People are crazy or whatever. You know, people were crazy. But that must be happening all the time, and we just can't see it because we're so, you know, kind of embedded in the system of how the world works. Um, so I just started wondering, it's like, what will this period of time look like, or how will it be perceived in 100 or 500 or 1,000 years? I mean, the thing about that book is, is everyone sort of intuitively understands this. Like, it's not a shock to anybody that the way we think of the world now will not be the way we look think about the world later, or, or that the way historians will remember this time will be different than our own perception. But when you start giving actual examples, it's very discomforting to people. And I guess, I mean, I was just interested in that idea. There are two issues, right? One is is the degree to which we're doing things and we may not know that they're wrong, say, or we not we may not perceive of them as wrong. And then the other idea is that we sort of know deep down that they're wrong, but we do them anyway. If we were to look back on 2018, 30 years from now, and we were to say, what were the things that were going on in 2018 that just seem crazy today? Like, don't you think you and I could maybe have like pretty good guesses about what those things would be like, you know, prison population, the way we treat animals, uh, the way we, you know, have carbon emissions without, you know, being more conscientious about it, whatever it is. It, it I mean, it could be things that we just have no clue about, but it seems to me well, that me, me, yeah, go on. Well, I mean, you're talking about 30 years though. And in the span of 30 years, you're really talking about the same populace, right? What you're really talking about is people who are teenagers or young adults right now who are going to be sort of in positions of institutional power in their 50s or 60s. So it's as if those issues, the things that they probably, uh, you know, in the present tense are sort of seeing as uh, awkward or strange or problematic or whatever, in, in, a, in the span of only 30 years, that will just kind of galvanize in their mind and calcify in their mind, and they'll really be talking about their own life. I mean, 30 years is not that much time. Uh, it seems that way when you're 35 years old or whatever. It seems like that's, you know, a lifetime or whatever, but it's really not. Uh, my book was more based on this idea of people who have yet to even been born. I mean, people right. who are going to find meaning in things that uh, that they will see only as history or only as things that sort of predate their existence. But to answer your question, I mean, probably yes. Although, you know, not necessarily. I mean, now that we're talking about this, I mean, let's go back 30 years from now, uh, you know, 30 years in the past. What did people from that period perceive to be the problems that later humans would consider it. I, I guess I haven't, you know, we, we could talk about that if you wanted, but I, that, you know, what, sure, uh, yeah. I, I'm not sure what, you know, what, what did people in the 1980s think was the problem, you know, or the pro or the understated problems or whatever. I don't know. You know, we, I, that, that's kind of up for debate, I suppose. I, I, I've been thinking about this, I guess this isn't exactly related to, to your book, but you know, with the, with the sort of post Harvey Weinstein reckoning in, in Hollywood and a bunch of industries, there've been a lot of apologies and quasi apologies. And they all take the sort of form of, I now know what I did was wrong, essentially. And that to me is a fascinating construction because, you know, just to, to, to bring this to sports for a second, when, when Michael Vick got in trouble with, for dogfighting and, um, 
left the NFL and went to prison briefly. He he gave a statement, an apology, which I thought was really striking, which is basically that he said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said basically the, the scary part of this is not that I now know what I did was wrong. It's that I always knew what I was doing was wrong and I did it anyway. And mm. it's shocking to me how few of the apologies that we hear about, you know, in the sort of post-Weinstein era say that. And I just thought maybe you had a thought about that because it, it seems to me that that that's actually more true to who we are as humans, what Vic said, than what the apologies we're seeing now, because we kind of do know generally when we do something wrong that it's wrong and we do it anyway. And that's what's kind of frightening about it. I, I mean, I that's true, you know, and, and I think that when you're talking about a situation like with Michael Vick, but perhaps even some of these other situations we're talking about that are that are in many ways, you know, far more serious. It might be that, you know, in everybody's mind, there are tiers or levels of wrongness. And, you know, they may realize something in the past they did was wrong and they knew it then. But when it originally happened, they thought it was, you know, like an ethical misdemeanor. And then now they have this realization that like, oh, no, that was an ethical felony or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like that they knew it was wrong, but they did not think it was um, some sort of – they were able to almost come and compartmentalize it into, well, we can fit this wrongness into this slot and I can live with this degree of wrongness. But now that the rest of society has agreed that this is an uh, like a, a, almost an unforgivable thing, I too must accept this. You know, I was, I was talking with a guy last night at the bar. We were talking about, you know um, – Oh, you know, like Stormy Daniels and all this stuff and how, you know, in any other point, in any other administration in our lifetime, like this would have been the most sweeping political scandal. It's almost un- unthinkable to imagine this thing happened in the past. And now no one even cares, really, in a weird way. It's like even Trump's greatest detractors have kind of moved on. But what we're talking about then is, you know, like the Monica Lewinsky situation. Okay. Now, when that happened... You know, I was I just I was just starting working at the Beacon Journal uh, in Akron, Ohio, when like when the Star Report came over the AP wire, and it felt, to be honest, a hundred times uh, more monumental than almost any scandal within the current administration. It was just it was just this consuming thing, you know. And we were reading the Star Report, and we were talking about this constantly. And then you know there was the, the issue with impeachment, and could he be removed for um, something that was kind of unrelated to this? And it was all tied back to Whitewater and all these things. But then ultimately, we get to a point. I think it was about Christmas of 1999. I think where Bill Clinton's approval rating actually kind of went up. I think it was the apex of his entire tenure of of his approval rating in the wake of this scandal. And at the time, the thinking was, well, this shows how the American public is actually more sophisticated than the American media. Right. That the American media was consumed with this uh, situation as if it was a real travesty or a real tragedy. And the American people perceived this as really ancillary, not really central to the job of being president or whatever. And it seemed almost to reflect badly on the media, but positively on sort of the average person, quote unquote, average person. But we were talking last night at the bar, like in some ways, did this sort of set the stage for the way the public reacts to these things now? Like it did seem completely reasonable at the time to say what the president did was not was was wrong. It was a bad thing, you know, but it's not really a reflection on whether or not he deserves to be president. And I wonder if that was the beginning in some way of this cultural shift to the point we're at now, where almost nothing that the that, that Trump does uh, as a person seems to have any consequence on how he is perceived in terms of the pre-existing opinion changing. In other words, of course, no matter, you know, it, when he made that joke, but I could kill somebody on Fifth Avenue, I could murder someone on Fifth Avenue, and everyone was like, it's insane he said this. Uh, but boy, that was a prescient thing. I mean, that is true. That is absolutely true. If, if Trump were to murder someone on Fifth Avenue now, um, th- the people who support him would perceive that event as 
uh, you know, socially central or important or, or, or you know, it's, it's strange. I, I doesn't, it, it seems as though something you thought we were talking about 30 years, you know, um, maybe that's something that has, that we didn't realize at the time that, uh, that the ability to sort of rationally accept something would have this sort of spiraling effect. Well, Lewinsky is also interesting too, because it feels like in the 20 years since that happened, the culture's gotten more forgiving and less forgiving, more forgiving about extramarital affairs and less forgiving about sleeping with your interns. Now, I personally think that those in isolation are good things. I think we shouldn't hound a president for having an extramarital affair, and I think sleeping with your interns is bad. So I don't have a problem with that kind of in a vacuum, but it what what you're saying does does make one think. I mean, I, I guess the other question, though, for me, with all things Trump, about the degree to which this stuff is accepted is that, you know, two of the things that I think always kept our politicians in line are the first is sort of there was a party apparatus that enforced some sort of discipline. And in the Republican Party, that's gone today. And the second thing is just sort of basic shame that politicians would resign office or they would leave because they were embarrassed and they were getting bad headlines and they were just sort of humiliated. And that's just not the case with Trump. And I that I sort of think, even if we have these problems with our institutions or the Republican Party's gone crazy or any of these things, that, that with other politicians, you would see that. And it's the same thing with lying, right? I mean, you could say, well, we're more forgiving of lies now. Or you could just say, you know what? No politician would ever be this shameless about lying except for this particular guy. And if Trump had shown up in 1985 and lied like this and was fine with it, people would have put up with it. I don't know the answer. Well, I, I know it's it's a it's a fascinating thing. I mean, you know, a, a word we often talk about with presidents, you know, transformative. You know, is this a transformative president? And what we're usually talking about in the past, it was always like, will they change the country in a way that will exist beyond their tenure? But in a weird way, Trump has been by far the most transformative president. I think that it, it, the, the consequences of this administration. The main one is going to be the kind of person who runs for the president in the future. Like, it's possible there's this, uh, you know, I'm sure you've had this debate a million times with people. It's like there's some people who think, well, this is really an, like an anomaly. And after this period, we're going to go back to the way it was before. And it's, this is going to be just this weird story people talk about 40 or 50 years from now. But then there's this other thinking that maybe this will just you know, inherently change the way the, you know, becoming president works and that really it's just two parties who have two platforms and two ideologies. And can they find an individual? Typically it will be a, probably a celebrity who can sort of be the figurehead of this party. And well, that's sort of what the presidency will be. Um, I, I, I want to go back to something you said that was interesting. Is like you said that, that they're, you think that we're more and less forgiving. I, I guess I'm trying to figure out if that's, if I agree with that or not. I, I guess what I just, I'm just, I'm just sort of talking off that my head now, but it's like, it seems as like this, if, if you make a mistake, you get hammered much more aggressively. There is an avalanche of people who basically say this error almost justifies that your career be destroyed. However, if that doesn't happen, if you can somehow weather that storm, then you can just move on. Like, you know, like the, like a, a few months, maybe weeks or months ago, like Matt Damon gave this interview and for three days uh, was just kind of crucified, mostly on social media, but also kind of in the mainstream media. And it seemed as though that was really going to briefly, like it seemed like it was going to impact the trajectory of his career. But that's not going to happen now. It's like he was able to he he was able to kind of get through that period and now he's almost the exact same Matt Damon he was prior to this, you know? I guess what I'm wondering is 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 the ability to withstand that kind of social media pressure or, you know, what Matt Damon went through? I, I shouldn't say went through like he was a victim here, but what what Matt Damon underwent after uh, after making his uh, his comments is is that sort of comes back does that sort of come back to shame a little bit like if you're just willing to put up with it you can kind of survive it 
Um, I mean, when I think about all the sort of political scandals of my my childhood, they all seem to end with there would be three or four days of crushing media attention. And then finally the politician would come out and he'd make his teary statement and his wife would be next to him. And that was it. And it's maybe like, no, you just got to stick stick with it a little more and you'll be okay. I don't know the answer. Well, well, I think part of it is this. I mean, you talk about the, like the you know, as a concept, shame, okay? Shame is, in theory, supposed to come from oneself, that you feel this degree of shame. You are embarrassed or humiliated by the thing you did. You have the self-awareness to look at yourself and say, this was something uh, I should not have done. I'm embarrassed people know this about me. But because of the way things work now, and the responses are so extreme, I mean, particularly on Twitter, not to blame everything on that, but particularly on Twitter, the, 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 the responses are, are so extreme that it is always plausible to say, this is too much. This shame is a construction of other people. This is, you know, it's impossible now for someone to say, I'm my own worst critic. That doesn't exist anymore because everybody in the world has critics out there who are so bombastic and so over the top that no one could ever feel that way about themselves. And when that happens, it changes, like, the bar changes for the person in their own sense of self. It's like the idea that, well, I felt bad that I did this or I shouldn't have said this, but here are people who are essentially saying that I should be executed uh, in public for having done this. Well, it wasn't that bad. So therefore, my sense of shame is not really my own. It's can I weather other people's belief of how I'm supposed to feel? You know, do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, like I think that 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 this idea of shame you're talking about, that was driven by the politician. Gary Hart was ashamed he allowed himself to get photographed on a boat with a woman. Um, it was it was from him. It came from him, you know. I, I do wonder if Matt Damon is going to survive this. I mean, he's going to survive it in the sense of he's still going to have a successful movie career. I do wonder, you know, I think he probably needs more than this, but I do wonder if um, if he keeps saying things like this, if he'll sort of lose credibility in certain types of roles that people do not want to see him in. You know, I remember after the Tom Cruise couch jumping and then all the Scientology stuff in Katie Holmes, there was kind of the sense someone wrote this article essentially that, Tom Cruise had been the biggest movie star in the world for almost two decades and then sort of became the type of guy that you could cast in action movies, but you could not cast as like a Jerry Maguire type figure because women especially just did not want to see him in roles like that. People in romantic comedy, that was not, you know, something he could get away with anymore. And, and I do wonder with whether with Matt Damon, whether whether that type of thing would happen, which I guess is interesting to me that. If it could, the idea not that someone's career would disappear, but that because of their behavior, we would only sort of feel comfortable seeing them as an action hero or or something. I don't know what it would be in Matt. Well, Davis I mean case. that. The, 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 I mean, the, to me, the, the, one of the clearest examples of this is Hugh Grant, and that Hugh Grant's able to still be um, an actor with really the same level of success he had before his scandal, but the kinds of roles and uh, that that he uh, takes now are different than the ones he was seen as a real kind of cuddly, lovable type figure, uh, you know, like a, uh, and that's not how it is now. Um, so, I mean, that could happen to Matt Damon, I guess. He might not have complete agency over which roles he picks. Um, but when you look at his filmography, you look at a lot of those movies, there's not a lot of them where you could say, well, he couldn't do that yeah. now. No, I mean, Matt, Matt somebody, somebody might say, somebody might say Goodwill Hunting. They were saying like, well, you know, you, for this movie to work, you have to like him and feel a degree of sympathy toward him. Even though his exterior personality might be abrasive, you've got to like him and want him to succeed. And maybe now that will be difficult for um, a certain kind of uh, you know, I mean, you know, audiences are, are are changing now where there was, I mean, I just, you know, when I, when I first got into criticism, uh, you know, as like kind of as like a life or whatever in 1994, 95, um, one of the prerequisites of the job was, can you distance yourself from the life of the artist? Just look at the art. 
Like, do you have the ability to do that? Because the time the thinking was, you know, a lot of people can't, a lot of people in the audience can't do that. They can't look at, um, you know, they can't look at somebody like Marilyn Manson and not think of, you know, his character as a way to, that informs them about what the music means. But as a critic, you're supposed to be able to do that. You're supposed to be able to say, I can just look at this art and, and sort of, uh, examine its merits almost separate from the individual. And now that has completely reversed. And not only do people not expect you to do that, um, they don't want you to. And, and uh, you know, I, it, there is an expectation that, of course, you're going to think about uh, the individual's, you know, real life persona within they're, you know, even their fictitious work, you know, uh, so that has well, changed. What's your feeling about that? Well, I mean, it, w- my feeling doesn't matter. I mean, <laughs> like, it's just like, it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter to me if, if I think it's good or bad, that's just what's happened, you know? Well, no, no, I'm just um, curious what you yeah. think about it though. I mean, you're, well, I, okay. I, I mean, my, my thinking on all these things is, and I don't just, maybe this, I'm not supposed to even have this opinion. I'm not sure, but you know, I, I always think that, as we move forward through time, things don't really get better or worse. They just change. But because it is uh, uncomfortable or awkward to have spent a bunch of years thinking and feeling one way and then suddenly realizing that that thinking and feeling is now, um, you know, uh, unfashionable or whatever, um, that people perceive then that that things have gotten worse, but really things have just gotten different. Um, so... There there have always been critics and writers who sort of went outside of the text, okay, where it'd be like, you know, everybody is writing about Hootie and the Blowfish. Everyone's writing about the Hootie and the Blowfish record, and they're talking about whether or not the music is cool or lame, or are they actually talented, or are they not really talented, or is this sort of like, you know, they're you know talking about who the audience for this music is, all of these things. Why did this happen? And then there'd be a few critics outside of that who'd be like, well, let's think about Hootie and the Blowfish as an idea. What does it mean for this to have happened, that this band is so much bigger than all of these other artists who we perceive as being more talented or more important or more insightful or whatever? What, you know, what does it mean almost politically or socially that... Uh, you know, for this brief period of time, the biggest band in the world is Hootie and the Blowfish. You know, they get mentioned on an episode of Friends or whatever, all of these things. There was always a sliver of people doing that. And I suppose when I first got into this, I sort of perceived myself being in that sliver of people doing it. And now this has completely flopped. Now that is the overwhelming majority of criticism. That's kind of the only way to do criticism now. What used to be sort of the fringe is now the center of everything. Um, and my feeling is it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work as well. Like it, it, it worked better the other way to have most people sort of thinking about, you know, what something is, you know, in, in sort of a, you know, at face value and then having only like a few people sort of thinking about the other way. But of course I would think that because I was in this, I guess, privileged position of being the person who was kind of allowed to do that. Uh, so I don't know. It just seems odd to me like it and, and actually living now outside of New York some of these things are more clear to me than they were in the past. Uh, like, a, oh, you know, like, okay, the Super Bowl halftime show or whatever. Uh, you know, the coverage of that in the media is all sort of built around this idea of Justin Timberlake's political intent or his lack of political intent, which is its own kind of politics and all of these things. But, you know, 103 and a half million people in America, whatever, watch that performance. And we're not seeing it as an event outside of itself. They were seeing this famous person dancing, playing, you know, singing songs of various levels of familiarity or whatever. It was not the, the idea that, you know, I saw someone was saying, like, at one point he should have, like, shouted out to Janet Jackson uh, to sort of uh, like, you know, pay penance for the event that had happened the last time they appeared at the Super Bowl. I just, I think that that's, that's not an idea people are really sort of 
working with when they're watching this. And that's supposed to be the, I, I would have always assumed that's the kind of interesting idea um, for people who are specifically consumed with this, uh, the possibility of sort of thinking about art in this way that goes outside of the text entirely. You know? Do you think that's because the people who read the media articles are interested in the political angle? Or do you think it's because, you know, the media is interested in the political angle or how do you, how do you, what do you think the discrepancy there is between most people watching and, or is it just that, you know, the media and criticism has always been at a different, you know, operating on a different kind of, I don't want to say plain like I'm making a judgment, but operate, you know, just operating differently than consumers. Well, that is true. That's always been the case. Yeah. There's been this sense that the critical community and the consumer community sort of, there was this chasm between them. The chasm is greater now. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, but also, you know, it's, 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 well, it, so many things have happened. Like, you know, like, like criticism is now more important, say, in the world of music or in the world, you know, than it used to be. But that's mostly because everything is less important. Like music is no longer the center of the, of youth culture. And, and because the music industry, has sort of collapsed. We, we don't have this system anymore where it would be like, well, you know, oh, Rolling Stone, you know, gives Black Sabbath a bad review, but millions of people like Black Sabbath. So it's like, you know, who's really winning this sort of battle? The people who are thinking about Black Sabbath or the people who like it. But now because that doesn't really happen anymore, that, that you know, it's everything is smaller. The biggest things are smaller. So the critical opinion of things seems like it's a, a a more meaningful distinction, but it's but that's it's confusing because it's 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 more important in a less important world. Well, also, you know, you talk about the the things are smaller. I mean, I was just thinking, just to go back to the Matt Damon thing, was that I would bet that my grandparents and maybe some of my parents have no idea about the Matt Damon controversy. There is no chance they would have not known about Hugh Grant or Tom Cruise jumping on Oprah's couch. Zero chance that like one of the reasons Matt Damon's career may be more likely sur to survive is because these cultural controversies are not, I mean, Hugh Grant was the biggest story in the country for a while, you know, um, Matt Damon will be the biggest story on Twitter, but it does feel different than the culture 25 years ago. Well, and plus, you know, it's, you know, okay, we're, we're talking about Matt Damon way more than I anticipated, but in the that's Matt Damon the whole situation, podcast, that was the plan. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like the Matt Damon situation, so that there's this sort of avalanche of people criticizing um, on what he has said. But then, of course, there's a lot of people who see that criticism and feel, well, this is too much or this is not really appropriate or I know what he meant, but they're not going to voice that response. They're just going to kind of sort of silently think that. So in a way, like whenever somebody is sort of in the crosshairs of the social media world now, there always is this, you know, this large kind of mute group of people who are on the person's side in a way and actually push toward being on his or her side. Um, but also don't want to say anything, not just be, basically for two reasons. One, that's like human nature. It's like you write a letter to the editor because you're upset by an article. You don't often write one because you love it. But also they know that if they sort of enter this, this, this dialogue, like then they're going to get hammered and then they're going to have to deal with it. So it's better to just say nothing and just sort of wait it out, you know? The thing you were saying about things, you know, becoming kind of looking at them through the political prism, I, I feel like I go back and forth on this because I'm completely exhausted by trying to find the political angle and everything. And just especially as a consumer who wants to read articles that it, it can be tiresome, uh, especially as a way of approaching a novel or I mean, it can all, it can be interesting, but it can be extremely tiresome. And I don't think that's a great sign for our culture in certain ways. I also think that the people who would feel differently than me have a completely fair point when they say, look, you know, at a football game before, before the kickoff, um, there used to be something sort of thanking all of our police and first responders for being great American heroes. And no one would ever see that as political. But if Colin Kaepernick kneels and says, we need to pay attention to police brutality, that is seen as political. And so that our idea of what wasn't political was in fact political, but we didn't kind of, um, 
identify it as such because of power dynamics or racial dynamics or something else. And I, I, I think that that is a fair point and worth keeping in mind. Oh, it is. It is. I, but there's, I think that there is a small explanation for that, which is in the past, if before a football game, if someone comes out and thanks the local police and the local fire department, the average person goes, yeah, that's bullshit. Who cares? Just, I mean, that's what they're like. They don't they don't really perceive it as being a real political statement. Like, you know, but that's the point. They don't perceive now, it that way. Right. Yeah, it, it, it just seems like filler. It just seems like, I mean, right. not even the, even the people who support that and like, you know, they work for the fire department or whatever. It's just, it almost seems like a, just like a useless PSA or whatever. It was not, you know, so now, but you know, I mean, that really changes when like, when that kind of message is sort of enforced, uh, in a way that, uh, does not seem fake. The fact that that no NFL team wants to sign Colin Kaepernick. That's politics we recognize. Like we recognize that something is happening here that goes outside his ability as a football player. You can make a lot of justifiable, argu- uh, justifiable arguments as to why, you know, signing Colin Kaepernick could be a problem for a team that is not political. But at its core, we know that it is. I mean, you know, I think in some ways, you know, when people get, you know, uncomfortable with this on on both ends of the spectrum, you know, I think it has to do with the sense that is this view being enforced? In other words, like nobody minds if, um, you know, say in the, we're just using Justin Timberlake again, if somebody in... Okay, I think like I think Michael Jackson performed at the Super Bowl halftime show in 1994, I think. Okay, I'm just I could be wrong on this. You can check this. But so Michael Jackson performs in 1994. Nobody would have minded if somebody from the Atlantic or whatever, somebody, you know, decides to write a piece saying, you know, what was the real sort of larger political meaning of Jackson's performance here? And, and, you know, for, you know that had been like, okay, well, this is, this is one sort of way to think about this. I never thought about this while I was watching, but this is interesting. However, if everyone is doing that, if virtually everyone writing about an event is looking at it through a political context, um, then people feel like, well, now I don't want to be forced to experience this entertainment in this way. It's like, don't I have agency in this? Can't I, you know, absorb this just as sort of kind of facile entertainment at, that, that, you know, low stakes, not that important. It's pop music, it's consumer music or whatever. Um, so I, and, and that, and that, and it works the other way too. I think that if, if yeah. somebody says you cannot protest before an NFL game, you cannot kneel down. It's distracting to people who just want to watch football. That is the same way. It's like they feel as though someone is telling them that there is only one way to feel about these things. So when you talk about like, are these things healthy for the culture or unhealthy for the culture? I do think that it is a little bit unhealthy for the culture if we get to this position where we say anyone who thinks critically about this can only think about it through one avenue. That this is not you. You do not have like okay. Here's another example. Like so, I I I see now. I saw a Phantom Thread on last Friday. Okay, you know I love P.T. Anderson. I don't have a lot of chance. I, I, it's hard for me to get to movies now, but like I wanted to see this, so I went and saw this movie. And I'm thinking about it as I'm done, you know, and and I'm kind of unsure at first what the theme of the movie is. Um, I'm like, it's weird. You know, is it about, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, does this movie suggest that in order to really love someone, you must be vulnerable or all like, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm texting with a few people who've seen it. And we're kind of talking about what we think of this movie and what we think it means. And we're all sort of using like a, a personal context. Like we're thinking about how this relates to relationships and sort of like, you know, romantic love and all of these things. Well, now I see the big conversation about Phantom Thread is that people are saying this is a movie about how we need to like, you know, protect the white male genius and that the Daniel Day-Lewis character is sort of a representation of the idea of like almost 
the, the, you know, the auteur figure who, because we have decided what they do is brilliant, therefore everything in the world must cater toward their success. And, 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 and his, his female counterpart just needs to almost sort of do what she can to prop up his genius. Now, you know what? That's an interesting way to look at that movie. Okay. That's, I'm, I'm not, I'm in no way, am I, and, and it made me think about the movie differently, but I now get the sense that this is going to be the ongoing argument about the merits of this film as it moves through the award season. That, you know, does this movie in some way suggest that the male, you know, you know the, the patriarchy, the white patriarchy must be saved? And while that's absolutely uh, like a great sort of thesis for an essay here or an essay there, I think it's going to be weird if that becomes the overriding way to look at this movie because movies are fundamentally personal. This kind of movie is fundamentally personal. So I'm not saying that my perception is the only one that should exist, but I would, I hope that there, I hope that it's not like because this movie is good and because this movie is important and because this movie could win an Oscar, we have to ascribe an inflexible political reading of this that you have to either agree with or disagree with. I think that's bad. That's right. I mean, I, I, yeah, the, the question again is sort of like how many people are, to what degree is that sort of going on beyond the sort of small circle of people who read, you know, certain articles on certain sites, but I, I don't know the answer to that. Well, but here's the thing about that. Like, and, and this is something I realized while writing, you know, like, but what if we're wrong or whatever? There's always two kind of silos of cultural memory. There's sort of the, 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 the real big silo, which is the way most people sort of um, understand the event, particularly people who aren't invested. That like they're just that that you know uh, they they know it happened uh, they they know a, a person is important or not important they have almost like a like a unsubtle understanding of it but it's a, it's a collective mass understanding and then there's this other silo of people who write about it in this different way and and, and try to contextualize it in this larger way and one silo is huge and one silo is small but in the future the silos are almost the same because the big silo is just sort of the memory, the natural memory people have. Right. But if someone is going to write about the phantom thread in a hundred years, right. that probably won't happen. But if it does, they're going to go back and look at that smaller silo for guidance. That's going to be the data they will have. So these opinions that do seem to be happening in a, in a small group of people in the present tense, that is true. Like, you know, 1% of the populace is concerned about the political meaning of Justin Timberlake's halftime performance. 1%. But as we move forward, that 1% will be the only information that really exists because everyone else will just straight up forget and not even remember he performed. Right. I guess unless the unless the society changes in some ways where the political meaning of the Super Bowl take seems less interesting. I mean, we're kind of moving in a direction where the political meaning of the Super Bowl halftime show means more and more and more. I suppose it could go in the other direction, which goes to the point you were initially making about how we don't know what the future is. But but I, I think that that's a valuable point. And, and I should say for anyone who for me or you, for anyone who's a writer we all want to tell ourselves, and you seem to be saying that there's some truth to this, that even if our particular piece is only read by, you know, 500 people on a given day, that there is some larger value in it or over time, you well, know. I mean, that, I mean that, you know, that's always like this cliche. It's like, okay, you want to live forever as a writer. How do you do it? Yeah. Well, you become a poet because while you're alive, 500 people will care. And then in, a, in 300 years, 100 people will care. But, you know, it's like it's like there, there are certain kinds of there are certain kinds of things that because the audience is small, do have greater longevity because the, the type of individual drawn toward that kind of thinking or that kind of work um, is small enough that they can almost kind of collect and collate all of it. You know, last question for you before I let you go. I, I was curious about this. I've been asking a bunch of friends about this and I've gotten different answers. So I'm curious what yours is. I know nothing about music, like literally nothing about music. Um, I mean, I know who the Beatles are or I know you too is, but I, I know very little about music. And one of the things I've found asking people about music compared to, uh, say, novels or films, which I know a little bit better, 
it seems to me there's less consensus about what music is good. And I guess what I mean by that is if I ask someone about a novel or a film, that person could kind of have their own particular opinion on the novel or the film. But I think it would be very easy to sort of place whether it's Adam Sandler or Martin Scorsese or Jonathan Franzen or, uh, you know, George Eliot for people to kind of say, here's my particular opinion, but kind of the, the conventional wisdom about Adam Sandler is as X among upper middle brow, you know, film viewers or the conventional wisdom about Martin Scorsese or Paul Thomas Anderson is why with, with music. What I've found again, as someone who doesn't know it is when I ask people about music, it's not just that people have different opinions of songs or bands, but that there's no consensus. And so I have friends who know music who will say things like, Oh, everyone loves band X. And another people will say, Oh, band X is so lame. Everyone knows that. And is that because there's so many genres of music or am I completely off or what do you think of that? Well, no, you're right because there, there is a, a, a depth to the subjectivity of music that, um, I don't know, you know, you could say the same thing about novels, but somehow it's not the same. I mean, the rock and roll hall of fame is a great example of this. Okay. So you look at the baseball hall of fame. Or the, or the Pro Football Hall of Fame or the Basketball Hall of Fame, okay? Now, there is a degree of subjectivity in this as well. But here's something that never happens, okay? There are people who they, you know, that, that, that there can be an argument over, well, you know, or maybe Roger Maris should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, maybe he deserves it. Or maybe this individual who got in didn't quite deserve it. It's all people on the cusp. But no one looks at anybody in the Baseball Hall of Fame and says, that guy's terrible, that guy's awful. He was bad for baseball. He's a bad player. In the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that happens constantly. Every year, there are people inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who a certain sect of, of fans and critics will say, that music is bad. Like, they are bad. Uh, you know, um, and it sort of, in a way, nullifies the value of having a Hall of Fame of something where the, the feelings can be that disparate. Um I think the deal with novels, why that, why there is more of a consensus with it or, or films in a way is like, well, the pool seems smaller. I don't know why that is. I mean, with movies, it's, it's explainable. There's only like, you know, X number of movies released in a year. Books, there's tons of books, but the books that sort of get attention, there's only a handful of them, really, in a way, you know? So you can say, well, this is the kind of the pool we're working with, and we also, no one can read every novel, so you sort of do trust what book critics and book reviewers say, and you see that sort of as a canonical thing. And also, it's, you know, books are ingrained in academia, so where, you know, the creation of canons is almost everything, just so you need to have this canon so you can disagree with it. Music is different in that way. It's like, it's, it's, it's super accessible. So like, you know, if, if somebody wants to have a negative opinion about my struggle, like the Nosgaard series, okay, that's a lot of time you got to invest. That's a lot of pages you have to read. And it's hard to imagine somebody who would read all those books and put all that time in and then be like, yeah, that was boring. That sucked. That's just a weird response. Like if, if you've made that investment, you're probably going to be psychologically on the merits on you, on the side of the merits of the thing. Music's not like that though. Music, you can hear the first, you know, 40 seconds of a song by the national and make a decision about the value of the music and the value of the band. And it's not that surprising. It's not, uh, it's not considered, like a, a, an insane thing to hear a song and instantly dislike it. I mean, I have all, I find this about pop music just so fascinating. You know, pop music is really the only art form that was ever consciously created. I mean, this full intent and only intent was that this is supposed to be music for young people or teenagers. And as a consequence, the opinion of a 14 year old kid about pop music or hip hop or whatever is immediately considered more valuable than the opinion of a 70 year old guy who spent his whole life thinking about it. Like, I mean, the, 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 the ingrained belief in pop music is that whatever right. like your kid thinks is cool is more accurate than Chris Gow or whatever. It's like, it just, it just is. So the rules for music and, and the, what you're talking about are just different. 
Like they're just not the same. Right. I mean, know? with film, it's, it's not, it's the, the movies made for younger people. It's sort of assumed that not only is the older person who says, you know, whatever it is, is a stupid movie, but that it's sort of assumed that the 14 year old will soon come to think that because they have matured. They are, you know, becoming well, okay. into adulthood, they'll realize Top Gun is not a masterpiece or whatever it is. And I mean, this is another thing that has just, that has definitely changed in my lifetime. Like, I mean, I'm 45. I haven't lived that long, but this is one thing that I have, that I have seen just completely evolve, which is that there was a period where to be considered knowledgeable about any subject, there was almost this demand that you had a degree of knowledge about that thing's history. So if it was, if you were, you know, if it was 1985 or whatever, like I'm in high school and I want to talk about music or whatever with somebody uh, older than me, their assumption is that like, well, your opinion doesn't really matter unless you also know about the Beatles and you know about the Rolling Stones. You need to know about those things. You don't have to necessarily like them. But if you have no relationship with that, how am I possibly going to take your opinion about REM or Cinderella or whatever seriously? Okay. Um, and that's just how it always was. I mean, being smart meant you knew about things that you didn't experience. If you were a student of history, it meant that you understood the expanse of history. If you were a student of anything, it kind of meant like anybody can know what's going on right now. To be smart, you have to know what came before you. And that no longer seems to exist. Now the belief is sort of any of that stuff can be found on the internet in five seconds. I don't want someone telling me what the past was supposed to mean and have that inform the way, you know, um, you know, I listen to music now or I watch film now. I want to eliminate the past and only exist in this perpetual state of the present. Um, and that is it's just a, it's a strange thing for me. Like it's here again, I can't say it's better or worse. You know, it's just different. And because it's different, uh, it, it makes me feel uncomfortable that there's actually like a adversarial relationship with history of anything and that somehow that history is seen as oppressive and you shouldn't even know about it. It's better to just sort of live in now. I think I just I don't know. Maybe you disagree with that, but I, I feel like I've seen this change happen. Chuck Klosterman, uh, you will be back next week for a Matt Damon podcast. Same time, same day. Uh, but until then, thank you so much for coming on. I have to ask. It was a pleasure talking to you. And my pleasure as well. And that's our show for today. I have to ask is produced by Max Jacobs. Thanks for the help today from Verilyn Williams here at Slate's office in Brooklyn and Liza Yeager in Portland. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at Slate.com. Are you looking for more great Slate shows? Check out Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Rebecca Lavoie, my friend Gabriel Roth, and Carvel Wallace discuss all aspects of parenting from toddlers to teens. They answer listener questions and talk through parenting issues in the news. Get it every Thursday wherever you find your podcasts.